This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this Deep Look series of talks sponsored by the Division of Biological Sciences at UC San Diego. I am Suresh Subramani, the Global Director for the Tata Institute for Genetics and Society. It's indeed an honor and pleasure for me to serve as a moderator for this third talk in this series uh, uh, focused on COVID. And the title for today's talk is going to be Alleviating Suffering Caused by COVID-19, Reports from the Front Lines. Now, sadly, the dire news from the front lines today is that as of early November, we have had over 50 million cases of COVID worldwide, with 10 million cases in the USA alone, which remains the hotspot for this devastating disease. By Thanksgiving, the United States will have more than a quarter million deaths and a staggering daily caseload of over 125,000 cases every day. So in March and May, I moderated two other talks in this Deep Look series focused on COVID-19. The first episode focused on the biology and epidemiology of COVID uh, caused by this virus called SARS-CoV-2. And the second one focused on the pipeline of vaccines and drugs that were uh, going to save us hopefully uh, early next year. And yet it is sobering to think that 11 months after this virus entered the United States, it's still raging out of control. The challenges we face are many. Far too many people have died. The economy is still trying to find its legs. Many people have lost their jobs and everyone is eager to get back to work uh, in a safe and secure manner. So as we did in the earlier webinars, we have picked a panel of three outstanding faculty from the UC San Diego Health Sciences who will share their wisdom and expertise from the front lines. All of these are practicing physicians who have dealt with COVID patients over the last uh, uh, nine months or so. And uh, each of them will talk about their personal experiences. So you'll hear on the one hand, the inequities and disparities that different communities face in dealing with COVID and and, uh, its devastating effects. You will hear how we've uh, worked very hard with the physicians to reduce mortality and suffering, uh, as well as morbidity uh, caused by this disease. And finally, you will hear about how we can uh, create practical solutions and get back to work in a scalable manner. So each of the speakers will talk for about 10 minutes. And after you've heard all of them, there will be an opportunity for you to ask uh, questions of the panelists. So let me start uh, without further ado to uh, introduce our first speaker, Dr. Maria Rosario Araneta. She's also known as Happy Araneta, who is the Assistant Dean of Diversity and Community Partnerships. She is also a Professor of Epidemiology in the Department of Family Medicine and Public Health at UC San Diego. She will talk about the disparities in the clinical impact of COVID-19, highlighting how certain communities nationally are suffering far more than the, uh, the, from the impact of COVID-19 and why this is the case. So Happy, let me turn this over to you so that you can give your presentation. Good afternoon. Thank you, Dr. Subramani, for this invitation to speak about COVID disparities. As we approach 10 million cases in the United States and almost a quarter million deaths, what we've seen in the last 11 months is a persistence of excess risk for COVID cases as well as mortality among communities of color where Black and Latino and Indigenous individuals have a threefold higher risk of acquiring COVID-19, and Pacific Islanders have a a two-and-a-half-fold higher risk, with Asian Americans having a 20% higher risk. When it comes to mortality, although these data are a month old, the trends will still persist in that one out of every thousand Black Americans, Indigenous Americans, has died of COVID compared to about one in 1,800 white Americans. These data show that even if you adjust for hospitalization, um, for the risk factors for um, underlying conditions, as well as sociodemographic characteristics, the risk of hospitalization is highest among Black in blue, 
Hispanics and Asians compared to whites, and the risk of dying is also similarly higher in communities of color. When COVID uh, disproportionately affected Black communities in the East Coast, the big question was why. And the most obvious question was a higher risk of exposure among essential workers. This work was uh, chronicled at UCSF, where they tested individuals, mostly Mexican-American, in the Mission District of San Francisco, and showed that 90% could not work from home. So these are the people who are at higher risk, those who don't have the luxury of working behind the shield of a laptop. And since then, other factors have also been um, assessed to examine the higher risk for COVID and the underlying conditions that increase the risk of COVID disparities. In early July and, and even before that, the Navajo Nation had a higher per capita rate of COVID infection compared to New York City. Why is that? A lot of the structural determinants of health, including decent housing, nutrition, transportation, and access to health care, were absent in the Navajo Nation. 40% of Navajo households do not have running water, so that the very uh, basic intervention to prevent transmission, to, to wash your hands, was not feasible in the Navajo Nation. To your right, you'll see a headline that appeared this weekend and shows that in South Dakota, one of the states where that's experiencing a surge in COVID-19 now, Native Americans in South Dakota comprise just 9% of their population, but about 20% of COVID cases. Nationally, Pacific Islanders, who tend to be overlooked because they were a small community, or they tend to be reported aggregately with Asian Americans, thereby obscuring their higher risk, not just for COVID, but for other conditions such as type 2 diabetes, um, are they also have a higher risk, not just in California, but in states like Utah and Arkansas. Earlier reports in San Francisco showed that half of the COVID deaths occurred among Asian Americans. The assumption is that Asian Americans are at lower risk, but uh, once they're um, identified as the case, their case fatality rates are highest. And a new publication showed that uh, California's Filipino nurses, so uh, as a former U.S. colony, nursing and medical education in the Philippines followed a U.S. curriculum. So one out of every five nurses in California is Filipino. However, among all the COVID deaths among nurses in California, 70% are Filipino-American. So these trends in excess risk of COVID prevalence and mortality are observed in England, where Black uh, Caribbean, Black Africans, Asians uh, who are predominantly of South Asian descent are also uh, at risk for higher COVID mortality. And these trends have been found in countries like Brazil also, where their Black communities seem to be at higher risk. Locally in San Diego, you'll see that Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders as well as Latinos have the highest prevalence per capita of COVID infection. That's true in Los Angeles and in the state of California. These data are, uh, California data are not shown. And if among the COVID cases in San Diego, the uh, highest proportion of cases who are hospitalized are Asian Americans, followed by Blacks, and the highest case fatality rates, these are the deaths among the cases, are highest among Asian Americans and whites. In Los Angeles and in the entire state of California, the case fatality rates are highest among Asian and Black COVID patients. However, you don't hear this much in the national narrative, even though California has the largest Asian American population What's also limited is that Asians are reported aggregately. So we don't know if they're Filipinos or Vietnamese or, or Chinese. We don't know what languages the contact tracers need to uh, have fluency in or other cultural nuances. The map on your left shows the 
uh, COVID cases just in the last two weeks of October, and they've been quite consistent where the zip codes that are near the border or below the eight, the, the eight freeway, have consistently had the highest risk for COVID cases. And these, if you plot how many grocery stores are present in these zip codes in Southeast San Diego, for example, um, there's only one grocery store so that the opportunity to maintain a healthy lifestyle, keep uh, prevent diabetes or lifestyle associated conditions such, a, such as hypertension are minimized in places that have uh, food deserts such as in Southeast San Diego. And we have the opportunity to work with the county to establish a testing site when none was available. And since then, uh, many testing sites have been available. The impact for people who um, do not have COVID, but uh, the impact on the COVID economy also disproportionately affects Blacks and Latinos, who in San Diego tend to have a higher risk of losing their jobs or, or living in covid Hotspots living in multi-generational homes. Uh, redlining has prevented the opportunity to purchase homes in selected neighborhoods. And so you see very crowded uh, housing density in those areas. Certain occupations such as agricultural workers in Imperial Valley, where they uh, commute in crowded vans, have limited um, access to care, and then have to make the decision about quarantining at home and not having a salary to support their family. We, um, the people from the Marshall Islands are recruited from these island nations to work in food processing plants, also very crowded, and that's explained some of their high risk for COVID in Pacific Islander communities. However, as legal non-immigrants, they don't have access to healthcare the way people from American Samoa or Guam have. And then finally, when we talk about the digital divide, um, the Los Angeles is reporting a surge in low grades in Ds and Fs among children um, who are who don't have parents who can um, homeschool or tutor them, supplement their education while they're learning distantly. So some of the factors that contribute to the higher risk include occupational exposures, low wages, segregated housing, high-density housing, environmental policies such as the limited water access, toxic exposures that exacerbate their risk for, for lung disease, inadequate access to testing sites, and delayed healthcare access. What's been noticed in San Francisco as well as, as in San Diego is that Asians um, tend to not be tested as frequently as their caseload. So the surge in anti-Asian hate crime has um, forced a lot of especially elder Asian migrants to remain home. Undocumented status also among um, immigrant populations has also been a barrier. And um, as I mentioned earlier, the structural racism and social injustice and inequities to support a healthy lifestyle um, exacerbates the risk for any chronic condition um, and especially an infectious disease. What are the new opportunities? In October, California launched the COVID-19 health equity metric, the first in the nation, which evaluates testing positivity uh, that considers the lowest healthy conditions before um, a, a county can advance to a more flexible tier to reopen. The National Institutes of Health, where I have the opportunity to serve on the NIH Council of Councils and previously on the National Institute of Minority Health and Health Disparities, um, has provided several grant opportunities, including um, several grants that were awarded to San Diego to enhance COVID testing along the border in San Isidro. Um, Dr. Susan Little and Steve Spector and, and many others are involved in vaccine trials. So these are just some opportunities to um, address some of these disparities in communities that are disproportionately affected by the COVID pandemic. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Happy. Well, wonderful uh, presentation on the disparities locally.
So let's move then to our next speaker. Uh, and this is Dr. Jess Mandel. He's a pulmonologist by training, but like uh, Happy and uh, the last speaker, he wears multiple hats. He's a chief in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine and also professor of medicine at UC San Diego. He will talk about his personal experiences from the front lines and the lessons learned in dealing with COVID-19. He will also tell us about uh, the efforts that his team has undertaken to reduce morbidity and mortality of COVID-19. So Jess, over to you. Terrific. So let's just start by talking a little bit about the basics of COVID-19. This really has been an incredible event in the history of the world during our lifetime. Certainly um, nothing that we've seen has caused the impact on commerce and on world health um, in our lifetimes like COVID-19 has. As I think most people know, the infection occurs primarily through the spread of droplets from when an infected person uh, expels them, either through coughing, sneezing, talking, etc., and then inhaled by another. Once in the nose, there are spike proteins on the surface of the virus, and these interact with very specific receptors on the cell surface. ACE2 is probably the most important, although we're discovering other cofactors as well that may participate um, in this process. The virus multiplies, it may travel down the airway to the lungs where it infects other cells via the ACE receptor. And this infection of these cells deep in the lungs causes the pneumonia and causes uh, severe disease. In about 20 to 40% of individuals, the components of the immune system appear to control the infection. And these patients have uh, minimal or few symptoms and may remain um, completely symptom free. They can still emit some droplets containing active virus, but fewer than if they are, are more dramatically infected. What about risk factors for critical illness? So the majority of uh, patients are going to do well who are infected with COVID, but we know that up to about 5% will develop uh, severe illness. And risk factors for that pathway are increasing age and the uh, the overlay between mortality rate and increasing age really is quite dramatic in this disease. And also the presence of a number of comorbidities really raise the risk for a, a severe course as well. And these comorbidities include things like cardiovascular disease, such as heart failure, hypertension, chronic lung disease, uh, cancer, and chronic kidney disease, obesity, etc. Um, it appears that male sex is a risk factor for uh, worse disease as well, as is blood type A. And as Dr. Araneta discussed, non-white ancestry appears to be a risk factor for a variety of, of quite complicated reasons. So what is our basic approach to treatment? The first is to assure adequate oxygenation within the patient. So a lot of the problems that patients run into when they have a severe COVID infection is really due to the lungs being unable to do their job. We're able to give uh, supplemental oxygen either through nasal prongs or a face mask. If that proves inadequate, then we need to put the patient on a mechanical ventilator, essentially um, administer anesthesia, put a tube down into the windpipe and put them on a breathing machine, sometimes for several weeks. In some patients, uh, that's still inadequate for eliminating carbon dioxide and getting enough oxygen to the patient. And we have to do what's called extracorporeal support. And that's a situation where we put these very large cannulae into the patient and remove uh, blood at a very high rate put it through an artificial lung to put oxygen in, take carbon dioxide out, and then put that oxygen blood, rich blood back into the patient. At the same time, we're assuring adequate oxygenation. We are using medications to try to improve the, the course of the disease. Remdesivir is an antiviral agent. And while there's some arguments about its exact degree of efficacy, uh, we think it is helpful in this situation. Dexamethasone is a corticosteroid which decreases inflammation and appears to improve patient outcomes as well. There's some data to suggest that convalescent plasma, which is plasma that has antibodies against SARS-CoV, may have some utility as well. And then there's a variety of experimental therapies that are underway, uh, of which testing is underway as well. At the same time we're doing that, we do general supportive care, avoidance of complications, and then ultimately rehabilitation as patients improve. This is things like nutrition, like avoiding uh, skin breakdown, all sorts of things that don't sound very interesting, but actually are extremely important and have a major impact on the outcome of the patient. And I am proud to say that the outcomes at UCSD, particularly for patients with severe illness, are really in the, the top tier of hospitals across the nation. 
So at UCSD, we got a little bit of a head start because back in February, uh, evacuation flights of American citizens from Wuhan, China, were routed to a number of places on the West Coast, but that included Miramar Marine Air Corps Station close to our campus. And some of those patients became ill and were taken to UCSD Medical Center. And it, it was really a wake-up call that we had to use this precious time to really get organized and prepare ourselves for large numbers of, of incoming patients. As February blended into March, the, the news really became quite grim from Italy, from Iran, from New York, and we saw many, many hospitals be completely overwhelmed uh, by the number of patients that they, they saw. And we were determined at UCSD to not let that happen. So we really started very early planning for a major surge of patients. Our approach involved finding non-intensive care unit spaces that we could accommodate critical care in, that we could put a ventilator in if we needed to, meaning that it had uh, piping for air, oxygen, suction, uh, monitors, things that we needed. And we developed a very detailed plan with nine phases to expand from 25 medical intensive care unit beds to be able to ventilate over 220 COVID-19 patients if we needed to. We also made plans to expand our uh, ICU-capable personnel, really by blending intensive care unit trained nurses and doctors with non-intensive care unit trained ones to create these mixed teams, if necessary, capable of caring for critically ill patients. We also uh, made sure we had adequate equipment to care for large numbers of critically ill patients um, so that we wouldn't experience shortages um, if that occurred. So in terms of equipment, um, we went from a capacity of um, running about 20 to 30 ventilators per day, which is what we do on a normal day. Um, in a busy flu season, there might be three to six patients intubated uh, on ventilators because of um, respiratory failure from influenza. And we uh, stockpiled uh, 155 ventilators. Plus, um, we had the ability to ventilate about 55 more in the operating room from anesthesia machines. We requested up to 150 more ventilators from state and federal stockpiles as well. Um, we worked very early to assure adequate supplies of personal protective equipment as well. Um, we were very concerned initially about how much staff attrition we would have, people getting sick from COVID um, among our doctors and nurses. And fortunately, once um, proper protective measures were implemented, we've had very few people become ill. We took an inventory of our other doctors so we could um, stretch our staffing of non-critically ill COVID patients as well. We worked very closely with other hospitals to assure resiliency of other hospitals in the region um, and plan collaboratively. And then finally, we did contingency planning with our biomedical ethics people to ensure that if we started running out of mechanical ventilators or other life-saving equipment, that we would ration them um, on a agreed-to basis um, with similar criteria in all hospitals in, in San Diego County. At the same time this was going on and keeping us busy, um, it was clear that in Tijuana and in Baja, California, that a humanitarian uh, crisis was really unfolding um, as uh, hospitals there were really overwhelmed by, by patients. Um, in Tijuana, our neighbor, most of the COVID patients were at Tijuana General Hospital, and the doctors and nurses were very, very motivated, but they were short-staffed because many were out with COVID-19 themselves. Um, we decided to send a volunteer team involving doctors, nurses, translators, respiratory therapists, really to show up in person um, and work collaboratively every day, seven days a week for, for four weeks to really build relationships and then uh, proceed to a telemedicine approach. We organized this with the San Diego County Medical Society, but UCSD really provided about 80 to 90 percent of the personnel and the key administrative support. And our focus was really on optimizing intensive care unit care in terms of optimizing the way the mechanical ventilators were used, the way patients were positioned, um, and nursing interventions as well. We also identified some um, equipment deficiencies, which we hope to remedy as well. And based on our experience, we worked with the leadership of the hospital in terms of making detailed suggestions for improvement. And these were really greeted with enthusiasm. The processes of care have uh, improved significantly there. And, and we believe we're seeing improvements in outcomes as well. We were also able to raise over $35,000. And this came from the San Diego Rotary, as well as a lot of individual donors um, via a GoFundMe page. And that was used to purchase equipment for the ventilators and to uh, provide bedside monitoring equipment so that we could care for these patients more safely. 
Um, we have uh, switched from a daily in-person visits to about two to three times per week teleconferencing visits as well. Mexicali uh, is the second largest city in, in Baja, California. And based on our work in Tijuana, we were also invited there. And um, because of the distance, we couldn't spend as much in-person time, but also are doing uh, telemedicine support. These are just some photographs uh, from Tijuana General. Uh, they're unable to do isolation room by room, or at least they weren't at this point. Um, so really the whole hospital was sort of a hot zone. And um, we worked very closely with our Mexican colleagues there to try to um, care for these patients as, as, as best as they could. This is just us showing delivering equipment. This is bedside monitors um, purchased by the San Diego Rotary down to Tijuana General. And this is just some classroom work in Mexicali talking about nursing interventions around uh, sedation. So currently we've transitioned to um, telemedicine with both sites. We have intermittent in-person activities as well with visits of their physicians to UCSD. Um, we're teaching ultrasound courses at Tijuana General um, so that uh, interventions there can be done more safely, um, working with them around infection control and um, some nursing training as well. So I will stop there. This has been a, a incredible uh, number of months here in our division and uh, working both at UCSD and on both sides of the border and uh, certainly something we've learned a great deal from and continue to learn from. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jess. Our final panelist is Dr. Francesca Torriani. She is the Program Director of Infection Prevention, Clinical Epidemiology, and Tuberculosis Control at UC San Diego Health. And like the other faculty, she wears multiple hats. She is also a Professor of Clinical Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases and Global Health at UC San Diego. Uh, the emphasis her, of her talk will be on enabling the return to work, finding scalable and practical solutions. So Francesca, over to you. Thank you very much for this opportunity. And so I will uh, speak for uh, around enabling uh, these solutions and how we went about this. As Dr. Araneta uh, explained and Dr. Mandel explained, um, there are multiple things that we can do for the institution, but also for the community. And so trying out and, uh, and finding solutions really helps then the community in turn. So what have we learned about scalable and practical solutions to revive the economy and ultimately to make us better in, while we face a pandemic? I think the key elements are to enhance safe environments and healthy people, screen for symptoms, test as much as we can, decrease the density of the population where we can, improve ventilation uh, in closed setting, uh, continue with physical distancing and the key concept that really revolutionized the Western world is the concept of universal masking and eye protection outside of healthcare. And then, of course, hand hygiene. So the first example I want to give is uh, with the Scripps Institute of Oceanography. Uh, this institute is a part of UCSD and it works on several research uh, projects. And uh, what I want to give is the example of uh, the ship cruises for scientific uh, missions. Uh, so SIO contacted uh, me early on in April uh, because everything was stopped, but they were starting to think about organizing continuing scientific missions. And shown here at the dock of the Nimitz Marine Facility in San Diego are two ships. One on your left is the Sally Ride, which is a relatively smaller ship uh, that carries about 35 people. Uh, and that is used for short-term missions uh, at a maximum of 14 days. And then on your right is the Raja Revelle, 
which is a larger ship which they use for long-term missions. These missions are funded by uh, the National Academy of Sciences. And so these are very, very large, expensive projects that clearly want to be successful and safe. And so let's start with the first one, which is Sally Ride. The Sally Ride is a smaller boat, as I said, contains uh, can contain up to 35 people. Uh, it is used for short missions from 2 to 14 days. And so what was key here was to keep the environment safe so that these research missions could be completed, right? But in the event of an emergency, we could always come back to port relatively quickly because these were not uh, missions in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. So what we decided here was that the staff uh, and the scientists on these missions were coming from the U.S., uh, and so not from abroad. Uh, and so we thought about a 14-day period of quarantine that would occur before boarding that was structured in two parts. The first one was an eight, eight days shelter in place at home, followed by another six days of self-isolation in a hotel room provided by the SIO in San Diego before boarding the ship. And the key was the first eight days, uh, the persons were going to get tested uh, on day one of the shelter in place at home isolation and the day before they were leaving. and then they would take their plane uh, or their car and and get to San Diego. Then afterwards, it was followed by another six days of self-isolation in the hotel. And when they arrive upon arrival to San Diego, they would be tested on day nine of the 14 days period. And then on day 13 before uh, getting on the ship. And clearly, All of these tests needed to be negative before anybody can board the ship. And then once on the ship, we continued uh, isolation, uh, everyone wearing a mask and continued um, physical distancing as much as possible. And um, for instance, the uh, eating Uh, was done in shifts so that uh, less people could be together, so to avoid. And this uh, started in uh, August and has been going on since without a problem, and it was very successful. Now, the second one is the Roger Revelle, and that has just started uh, now, a week ago, and they are now... uh, heading towards uh, the uh, western part of the Pacific. So the Roger Revelle is for long missions up to 68 days, and that is currently the mission that they're set. They will return to port uh, in December. So there we decided that there was much more at stake. Um, If anything happened and they were in the middle of the Pacific, Uh, they could not be accessed with a helicopter. And so we really wanted to make sure that the 60-some people on this boat would be safe. So we decided that for them, self-isolation in a hotel room provided by SIO for 14 days before boarding was going to be the plan. And uh, we tested them on day one and day 13. All must be negative on the ship. And here, because the um, the trip was so long, we decided that because there wasn't any um, outer influence coming in to the ship, that after 14 days of isolation on the boat, uh, we could at least ease some of the restrictions, so have them eat uh, together uh, and um, and simply be less um, isolated from one another on the same ship. And up to now, things are going well. 
The last example I'm going to give is what we did at UC San Diego Health. We decided very early on that we wanted to give a healthy uh, environment also for our healthcare worker force, but also for our patients. We wanted them to feel that they were safe when they came in for procedures that they needed because we knew that a lot of procedures had been canceled and a lot of patients were not coming into care and not getting very needed care, necessary care, because they were so afraid to get sick. So what we used was clearly symptom screening, but also we decided very early on that we would test uh, very, very liberally. And then that we would also widen this to the community around us. Currently, and since uh, April, we test all individuals with any symptom of COVID, even um, a headache or um, loss of sense of smell and taste. We test asymptomatic individuals that are at risk for COVID. We test healthcare workers with a work or household exposure. We test all patients who are transferred from another hospital or a skilled nursing facility. We test all patients before the elective surgery or procedures and all patients upon admission to the hospital. Uh, In addition to that, we test asymptomatic healthcare workers. We started the program in the spring and tested over 9,000 of our healthcare workers to establish the asymptomatic rate and to uh, give confidence. And now we offer more than 1,000 tests per week to all of our healthcare worker force. Uh, This is going through a um, kind of a, um, a, a roll around Uh, so that everybody can get tested on a regular basis. And we've decided that uh, we will test all healthcare workers voluntarily, of course, uh, every 12 to 14 days. So this slide is a busy slide, but it goes to tell you our experience at UCSD. And so in the first panel here, you can see all of the asymptomatic testing, symptomatic testing, uh, positive results in our health science employees, in our campus employees, and in our students on campus. And as you can see, we've tested more than 60,000 individuals uh, up to a week ago. Now, these were asymptomatic individuals. We also have tested quite a bit of symptomatic individuals, both in the health system and on campus. And as you can see here, our rates of positivity over time have been really quite low, particularly in the student and campus employees, because as you can see, the majority of these tests are done in the asymptomatic workforce and students. So this slide here on the right shows you basically the rate of positivity in yellow. And as you can see, we had our first increase in March when our testing availability was really low. And then our second wave was in uh, July, and we're experiencing now a third wave. But the point I want to make here is you can see here in green how the testing availability has increased over time. And this has made it that our rate of positivity is extremely low. And therefore, this has also had an influence on the county numbers. Because clearly, because we're testing so much and so many people are getting testing, the county also rate of positivity is lower. And that has provided 
at least a reprieve in the measures in the public health measures needed so in the in the various tiers that start public measures and so that has really helped the region in uh, keeping us in lower tiers with heavy public health measures but not in total lockdown so what is the picture in conclusion i think that the key essence here is that we still are in a pandemic and without available vaccines although we heard today the very good news that the Pfizer vaccine is looks very promising uh, is that we have to continue non-pharmaceutical interventions uh, until the population can be vaccinated and so these are what i discussed in the past slides but basically we can continue doing that in in all the settings taking the example of the successes we've had in these settings for instance we can continue these measures in the in schools and in public schools and we have collaborations in public schools with testing so that we can provide testing in populations who have first of all not the means but also no access or lower access to testing thank you very much thank you so much uh, to the panelists uh, i just want to say that uh, we recorded this program about 10 days ago and at that time there were 50 million cases of covid around the world and in the us we had just passed the 10 million mark 10 days later we are at 57 million people around the world and close to 11 and a half million people in the us so uh, while this is uh, quite sobering there's also light at the end of the tunnel here as francesca said the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine now which were announced in the last 10 days uh give us hope there are new vaccines uh in the sense that this is new technology based on using uh nucleic acids uh to produce proteins so while the questions are coming in let me start off uh the questioning with this positive hope for the future and that is that as vaccines are on the horizon uh can i ask happy to start off uh with answering this particular question i know that the availability of the vaccine is going to be limited so what are the goals and challenges in determining which communities get it first are they the frontline essential workers the elderly the super spreaders or the privileged just to name a few and more importantly i'm sure our audience would like to know who makes these decisions and how does that trickle down from the federal down to the university level so happy we'll start with you and then uh, uh uh others can also chip in and answer the question okay sure these are all important considerations and the first goal is to mitigate uh death as well as severity of illness um and then the second consideration would be to mitigate further transmission especially among super spreaders Yeah on October 2nd the National Academies of Sciences Engineering and Medicine identified a four phase equitable allocation plan that would go through all state and local health departments as well as tribal and uh territory uh, tribal and territorial health agencies and the four phases include uh phase 1 there are only 20 um tw- there's there are only enough vaccine um initially for 20 million individuals and that's 5% of the population so for this phase 1 it'll go to healthcare workers dr toriani will elaborate on that and then phase 1b will go to 10% of the population and that includes those who are at risk of those who have comorbidities and underlying uh conditions those who are over the age of 65 who live in crowded housing places including nursing homes as well as homeless shelters and prisons in phase 2 which dr fauci mentioned might happen in april that would be about 30 to 35% of the population it would be kindergarten to 12 uh, 12th grade school staff including teachers and bus drivers people who work in high risk occupations those in the food supply industry and public transportation 
And then phase three would be university students. That's 40 to 45% of the population. Young adults who um, work in universities, hotels, and exercise settings. How much vaccine will be allocated per state? That's still unclear. Um, will it go proportionately to the population or should it go to states where they're surging and the positivity rates are high, such as in North and South Dakota versus lower positivity rates in cities like San Francisco? Uh, Francesco, would you like to add how the university is going to make the local decisions? Uh, so the they, they are, as uh, Dr. Araneta said, they are multiple expert guidance panel at every level, including federal, state, uh, the UCs, uh, CHA, the county, and then also at the hospital level. Uh, when uh, these um, vaccines are approved uh, and authorized by the federal authorities, by the FDA, uh, the federal government will distribute to the states and uh, the California Department of Health will work with uh, local public health departments for local allocation. And so within that, uh, as the first tier is going to be frontline healthcare workers, uh, we have established um, uh, prioritization among healthcare workers, knowing that only a small portion of our healthcare worker force uh, is going to have vaccine availability in this first uh, tier. And so we clearly want to um, put in front this this vaccine is 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 uh, voluntary vaccination is voluntary it's it's not going to be compulsory uh, but we want to put our frontline workers in the emergency department those uh, who work in uh, in stroke codes in uh, in uh, trauma to have access to the vaccine. And this will be two doses uh, for most of the vaccines so far. Uh, and so we will, um, those uh, healthcare workers who uh, indicate that they have interest in getting vaccinated and who belong to those categories uh, will be offered the two doses uh, of vaccine uh, for the Pfizer vaccine, it will be four weeks apart. And for the Moderna vaccine, if we get any, uh, it will be three weeks apart. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, so here's a question from the audience, and I'll uh, start with addressing it to Jess. Uh, so the question is the following. Uh, it's great to hear that UCSD is preparing for the surge. Uh, what exactly is UCSD doing to prevent the surge in cases? And is there any work being done on high-risk communities to reduce the incidence rates? Yes, it's an excellent question. And unfortunately, until we are in the era of the vaccine being um, distributed broadly, um, our main weapons in terms of controlling this epidemic are really the weapons of public health. And this is why you know, we hear again and again, over and over, the importance of masking, of social distancing, of limiting congregation and groups, um, all of these other things. And certainly we've worked closely with um, the county public health officials in terms of supporting their efforts and, um, you know, doing our best to, to control this. We've also done work, as I alluded to, um, in Mexico and northern Baja and trying to support their efforts, given that the epidemiology of the communities are, are so linked. Um, Happy may have additional comments about targeted efforts in, uh, in specific communities as well. So I think the plan now, um, as has always been, is to make sure that we have contact tracers in multiple languages that could, um, so that you would prevent uh, transmission within households, especially in communities that are um, that that culturally are larger families and tend to live in multi generational homes. The county has provided housing in the form of uh, hotels where where um, infected individuals can isolate safely and 
Um, and so those resources are available. Locally at UCSD, what, what uh, the UCSD Free Clinic, which is a, a great space for our medical students to, to learn um, clinical medicine, is that although visits have been limited to telehealth, our students have been very involved in the distribution of food and um, as well as medication. So that would allow people to stay home if they're able to and still um, and still eat and, and shelter safely. Okay, thank you. Uh, so the next question is for, addressed to Francesca. So one of our uh, members of the audience has, has says the following. You said that the San Diego public schools are working on testing. Uh, but my fiance is a kindergarten teacher and their hybrid plan is to go back to school and to be tested just once a month. Uh, he teaches in Spring Valley, which is considered a low income school. But how are these decisions being made? And are there any talks about disparities uh, being held at the K through 12 level? So Francesca, you want to address that? Yes, thank you for that question. Um, this is a a concern, right? And uh, um, we are, you know, we are working with the county and then with the different uh, schools and and depending on which school district, uh, it, it, those decisions are made uh, with the school district and the county. And we can offer our services as as we have but it but it's really dependent on that school district and the uh, the funds that they have and the decisions that they make but clearly what we're trying to do is to reach out as because we have testing capacity we're trying to reach out as much as possible to areas that they have uh, less access and uh, and offering our services at at prices that are um, you know affordable and and uh, and that may help the community. So the next question is addressed to Happy. Uh, so the Independent reported within a uh, within the last week that the richer developed nations have already bought out 82% of the vaccine stocks, uh, meaning that they have the money and the resources and they've paid for it. And even the U.S. has paid a variety of companies uh, for any stocks that might become available. So the question is, how do we ensure the equitable distribution of the vaccine uh, on a global scale to countries lacking these resources? And how do you uh, make it available to all of those people who might not be able to afford it, but obviously need the vaccine also? I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know. Um, I think in, in this kind of market, I think that was also the tendency when the COVID test became available, that there were not just certain countries, um, higher resource countries who had access to testing kits, so I think it's it's a crucial uh, conversation that needs to um, be encouraged globally, but I don't. I'm afraid I don't know the answer to that. I can just add that uh, uh, the WHO has formed a consortium of governments and companies uh, where they are willing to buy up this vaccine and then provide that with a minimal three percent distribution to every country around the world, and then the local distribution would be decided by the individual countries. Uh, the last I heard, the U.S. had not signed on to that. I don't know if since that point they have now, but at least there is a global mechanism that's uh, trying to address this very, very important issue uh, that all of us uh, care deeply about. Um, so, Jess, I want to go to you to, uh, you know, you talked about some of the best practices and you also alluded to the fact that UCSD is among the top tier of hospitals around the country. We've learned a great deal since the, the uh, COVID-19 started at the, on New Year's Day. Uh, what are, how are the best practices being disseminated uh, nationally as well as globally? Uh, is there an, a consortium where you all keep in touch with each other and how, how is this information distributed? Yeah, an excellent question. And 
you know, I think one of the few bright spots in the pandemic has been the way in which collaboration has occurred, um, you know, at, at every level. I think we're talking more to other hospitals in San Diego County and in the region than we were previously. We're talking a lot more to colleagues in Mexico than we were previously, and really on a national and international level. Um, the amount of communication and data sharing, I think, has been terrific. Um, as I see the cases going back up, and we here at UCSD as elsewhere are sort of, um, you know, getting all hands on deck and preparing um, to, to meet this current surge, I, I'm struck in some ways that things are very different than they, they were in March, where we really didn't know what to expect. I think really one of the great victories has been our ability to largely keep our um, doctors, nurses, other staff uh, from getting COVID and really to keep other patients in the hospital from getting COVID um, so that we, we, we've had very few um, cases of, of transmission in that, in that regard. And that really gives us, I think, confidence that we can expand and, and meet the challenges that, that we need to. Our, our supply lines are still challenged in some areas, but overall, I think they're much stronger and um, have much uh, less uncertainty than was the case in, uh, in, in the spring. So, yes, I think we're very proud um, that our outcomes have been so strong and that, you know, even among the, the sickest patients that we see, those in the intensive care unit on mechanical ventilators, our expectation is that 70% or more of them will ultimately survive on the course of their illness. And, um, you know, it, it's hard to point to just one thing that has led to those improvement in outcomes. I, I, I think a, as a group, the field has learned a great deal about the importance of meticulousness and um, the setting of the ventilator, the anticipation of potential complications, the early response to complications that, that, that develop. Um, and, and it's clear that there is a learning curve with COVID. There has been, as there is with everything else in life, um, and overall, the, the trend towards better outcomes has, has been seen in many places. Um, I want to turn next to something that was uh, discussed a little bit earlier on, and that is uh, uh, vaccine mandates. And we also have the issue of uh, mask mandates, uh, given that a certain percentage of the population will continue to resist this. And in particular, I want to draw attention to the fact that there's a history of mistrust with medical institutions uh, among the black and indig indigenous communities. And uh, polls show that the black communities have reported that they're less willing to receive these vaccines. How do we establish this kind of trust and engage the at-risk communities of color to uh, help them uh, you know, get past this uh, nasty disease? Sure, I'd like to take that. Um, yeah. and the, um, so the NIH, specifically the National Institute of Minority Health and Health Disparities, uh, announced today just the importance of messaging. And you can't erase a history of mistrust when experiments such as Tuskegee, for example, is in the, um, the generational history and memory of, of uh, the Black community. But, um, and it requires, it emphasizes the importance of community engagement. As a university, we need to be present in the communities that we serve, in the communities where our employees and our students uh, grow up and, and live. So um, that's, that's what we need to do, is, is to be present, to be very clear in our messaging um, and, and very uh, intentional in, in engaging community members um, to be part of the, the messaging plan. Uh, Jess, I'd like to address this next one to you. What are some of the psychosomatic consequences that uh, recent lockdowns and efforts to isolate individuals have caused? Uh, have, are you seeing uh, uh, patients who, who are suffering from those kinds of uh, uh, other side effects of, of this disease? Yeah, it's an excellent question. And I think the um, mental health impact of COVID in so many ways is has been extremely profound. I think at the level of the patient and families, the stress of having loved ones who are critically ill with visitation really restricted has uh, made a, a, a challenging situation much more so. But I think for everyone, just as a result of the lockdown of having a decrease in their social contact, decrease in the things that bring us all joy in terms of um, how we live our lives has, has uh, been a big deal. And I think, um, 
you know, on the more severe side, my colleagues in psychiatry, you know, have no doubt that the about the increases in terms of anxiety, depression, other significant mental health uh, concerns that they've seen are, are, are very, very real and certainly a, a cost of this pandemic. And I think on the other side of the spectrum where things don't rise to that level of, um, you know, mental health emergency, it's hard to find anyone in the U.S. who doesn't feel this, you know, the, the, in terms of how we deal with our loved ones, our parents, our kids, our neighbors, our friends. Um, you know, it's it, the, the impact is, is, is clear there. And I think the uh, when, when we think about the health response to COVID, we don't want to neglect the mental health response. I think that's an extremely important part of this. Uh, uh, so here's one for uh, all of you. And this uh, addresses HIPAA regulation. So if a child, uh, in fact, anyone uh, does test positive, how do other people, in the case of the child, teachers and other uh, professionals, uh, know who has been infected and how does one uh, go about doing this contact tracing? So there's contact tracing at the level of the county. Um, and so uh, the commitment is that each and every person testing positive will have a phone call to investigate uh, the circumstances of the infection and then to also identify any persons that have been at, at risk, that have been in contact with this person and so are, have been exposed. And then those people who have been exposed uh, will be quarantined and uh, watched for 14 days, which is the period of incubation. Uh, it is important to maintain HIPAA, and that is why we, even in the hospital, we discourage any uh, any uh, investigations that are not by the contact tracing team, uh, whether it's at UCSD Health or whether it's at the county level or the campus level. Uh, and, and that is really paramount, right, is that there is a team that looks at that. There is a team that decides isolation and quarantine needs. Uh, and uh, that is how we preserve uh, HIPAA. So the next question we touched upon briefly, but uh, it's worth readdressing this. Uh, what have been the observations uh, uh, with, uh, with the doctors about the financial impact of, of COVID treatment on patients who perhaps are from low-income households or are not insured? Are there programs that support such patients? There are, and certainly, you know, the, the financial impact can be very profound. Um, I can certainly say in my own experience, I've never seen treatment decisions at all influenced by the patient's ability to pay, um, which is, is the way it should be and certainly something I'm very proud of. Um, this is a, a complex issue and one you know present in COVID, present in non-COVID patients. Um, there are a variety of uh, programs to try to assist this, but they're imp imperfect and there's a patchwork and the financial consequences can remain quite profound. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're going to now uh, come to the last few questions. So let me uh, start with one that uh, is on everyone's mind with Thanksgiving approaching and uh, San Diego going into the purple phase. Uh, what do you feel about uh, the new restrictions that are being imposed? And uh, today CDC issued a ruling that uh, travel should be limited during the Thanksgiving holidays. What are your thoughts about this and open that up to anyone who wants to answer. Well, I think that once again, we're not in a situation of, uh, we're in a situation of, of exponential growth everywhere in the United States. And therefore these public health measures need to be taken very seriously. And uh, we know that mixing and matching households and uh, uh, having, you know, meetings, uh, especially around uh, eating, uh, is probably not 
the best way of curbing uh, the pandemic. And therefore, um, the CDC and other health um, systems, San Diego Public Health, but also CDPH, have uh, issued uh, recommendations and also rules. For instance, San, uh, the California Department of Health uh, just issued um, an interdiction of meetings of more than, or congregations of more than three uh, different households. Uh, and so I think that for this, for these, for this holiday season, we're probably best at following uh, these recommendations and these orders. Yeah, you. I would just add, you will find no bigger fan of Thanksgiving than me. It is my favorite holiday, hands down, with the combination of food and family. Um, but I think, you know, I try to take the big picture view here, which is in some ways we're in the home stretch. Um, we have vaccines that we think work that are gonna become available in the next few months. Um, at the same time, things have never been worse in terms of control of this disease in the US and we don't wanna blow it um, in, the, in the final few months of this pandemic. And you know, Thanksgiving will be back, it happens every year. Um, this is probably not gonna be the funnest Thanksgiving any of us have, um, but it's very important that we, we, we take these recommendations seriously and don't contribute to additional loss of life. I would like to add, as someone who was born and raised in Asia, there are a lot of lessons to be learned from the success of Taiwan and Korea in controlling their epidemic. And I think what's foundational is this collectivist thinking where we're each responsible to each other as part of a community. I come from a large family. We're 28, just in the immediate family. I'm, I'm the youngest of seven, but we're, we're going to be um, celebrating Thanksgiving by Zoom because it is our responsibility to each other. So I'll make this the last question. Uh, so for uh, those who are students who are taking in-person classes, would the vaccine be mandatory for such people? Uh, I, we can start at least with UCSD. Uh, what's the thinking here? The thinking so far is that the vaccine will be a voluntary um, that vaccine will be first provided for free uh, at no cost, but also that it will be voluntary. I think that as the pandemic goes on and there's more adoption, then things may change. But, uh, but at this point, uh, this is a, a voluntary process. So uh, I want to really extend a deep sense of gratitude and thanks to all of our panelists. Uh, this has just been wonderful to hear from the health sciences and from people who are in the trenches trying to work with the patients. And I thank all of you in the audience who have participated in this. Please uh, share this uh, uh, recording with, uh, with your loved ones. And most of all, have a safe Thanksgiving. And we hope to look forward to a wonderful new year, not, not too far away from now with a vaccine. Thanks again, and uh, 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 thank you for attending. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.